0: Welcome to Self-Compassionate Professor, a career wellness podcast for mid-career and recovering academics who want more, more meaning, balance, rest, joy, and more clarity. Our motto here is no regrets. So glad you're here. Hey, hey, what are y'all doing? (laughs) I'm Danielle Delamar and you are listening to episode 101 and I am talking to Dr. Eliane Boucher in this interview where we touch on a lot of important topics from the mental health of professors to making the decision to leave academia to different types of support that academia can put in place for parents and specifically for single parents. This conversation was just really helpful for me in that it really shed a light on single parenthood and the heavy lifting that goes along with it. Not that I didn't know that I myself was raised by a single parent, but as Ann says in this interview my mom did a pretty good job of making it sort of appear easy. And, you know, I'm a mom now and I know how hard it is. And I think about that all the time. And I'm always sort of grappling with different parenting issues and the challenges they present for my career and for my mental health and for, you know, my ability to care for myself in meaningful ways, but thinking about that from the perspective of being the only parent in our household, that is an issue I haven't given thought to, really. I was gonna say much thought to, but I haven't given thought to it really at all, which is why I'm so grateful to Eliane for this interview. And the light she sheds on this sort of segment of the population that we do not talk enough about, that we do not support enough, that are in many ways really invisible. So so enjoy this interview. If you are not a single parent, this interview is still for you. If you are not a parent, this interview is still for you. Elian does this fantastic job of connecting systems of support that single parents need to really everyone, right? I mean, she says, if we're supporting single parents better, we're supporting everyone better. All right, here she is now. It is so my pleasure to introduce her. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm talking to Dr. Eliane Boucher, Director of Research Strategy at Happify Health. Hi, Danielle. I'm so glad
1: you're here. I'm so glad to be here. I know we've been talking about it for a
0: while. So, we got um quite the story here from you. Um so let me just give listeners a little background. Um so I have, before people come on the podcast, I have them fill out these little notes. And Elian had written, the best views come after the hardest climbs. That was like her guiding mantra. Yeah. And let's talk about <laughs> how hard the climb was. Because we're dealing with like tenure denial, imposter syndrome, toxic workplace, uh, you're a single parent as you're thinking about making a major career pivot. There's a lot yeah. going on. Yeah. So um tell us first, what's the view like right now as director of research strategy? The
1: view, honestly, I think I'm not quite at the top yet, right? Like if I think about like, have I reached the summit? I think in some ways, Mm. I don't want to call it the false summit because, you know, like I'm a hiker too. So, you know, this is part of the reason why the quote means so much to me. Um, The false summit is like when you're tired and you're like, I made it to the top and you're like, ah, crap, I got more to go. So it's Uh. not, it's not a false summit. It's like a nice resting point, you know, where sometimes you're hiking and you get to a point where like everything opens up and you get to just like sit down and have a snack and some water and just take in this like really beautiful view. And that's kind of where I feel like I'm at now. Like I worked really hard to get where I am and I'm at this like comfortable resting point where I just get to kind of take in the scenery, enjoy what's happening right now and kind of feel like I did a lot to get here and this was where I was supposed to end up.
0: Tell us when the hard climb started, like what was the major pivot um, in your mind?
1: Yeah, it's kind of hard to pinpoint where it really started. I think it got really hard when I was, I was even before I got divorced, I was in a really difficult marriage where I was balancing a lot of the child care with my career, with the stressors of being in a pretty bad marriage. Um, And so professionally, like I was already making a lot of choices that when you think about academics on the tenure track, you know, we're really encouraged to just drop everything to focus on our academic job. But I had two kids already, two young kids. I got divorced when um my youngest was a little under two and my oldest had just turned five. Before that, I was even really making a lot of sacrifices professionally to prioritize my family um, and childcare. And then I got divorced and it became even harder. You know, child care was hard to come by because then you're financially stressed more. Um so a lot of it really came from realizing that I couldn't balance all of these things. So I'd say that's where it started. But then I think really the the tenure denial, I thought I was doing okay. You know, I was like, okay, it's fine. I'm I'm just maintaining good boundaries. I'm prioritizing my families, but I'm going to show that you can prioritize family and hold boundaries and still succeed in academia. And I was pretty shocked. I did not see my tenure denial coming. So it really kind of took me back and to kind of add – insult to injury while I'm coping with that of like, wow, crap, now what do I do? I've been at this for 10 years. I'm a single parent. How, you know, this risks my custody. How am I going to support my family? Can I find another job? A month later, my dad actually passed away from cancer. So like as I'm grappling with these huge kind of career issues, now I'm also grappling with, um, with grief. And I actually, Mm. two days after my dad passed away, had to go to a job interview and kind of like present pretend everything's okay. So, you know, that was really the the lowest of the low and kind of then climbing from there. I think, um, I had kind of this down, I was heading downhill for that period of time. And then that's the period where I think I really started climbing out of it. Um, and I've been doing that for about two and a half years now to get to where I am.
0: Okay. What was the hardest part of the the uphill climb?
1: I think there's the worst part was definitely, I think, just the the uncertainty of whether I was going to have to move to maintain an academic job. So, you know, early on when I was denied tenure, I I got pretty cynical, but then I got scared. You know, I thought I'm gonna leave academia and then I got scared because I was like, but it's all I know Mm -hmm. and it's flexible. You know, it allows me as a single parent to um, be able to take my kids to school and pick them up from school and I can spend some more time with them over the summer. What am I gonna do? And then as I kind of realized, well, if I want to stay in academia, where do I, where do I go? Because, you know, as academics, we know that you go where the job is. So you can't really say, I want to stay in this geographical area and hope to find a job. And then realizing that after 10 years in academia, I was being... I was looking at positions that were offering less than what I was making at the institution mm. I was leaving um, mm. and that I really couldn't afford that. Like one um, one place called me about whether I wanted to interview and told me that because they're unionized, the most they could offer me was forty eight thousand dollars a year. You know, oh, God. Right. Ten, oh. ten ten years of experience. Um, you know, a single mother with two kids and, you know, I, I felt so bad for these people because I was like, man, the people who, it must be a hard conversation to have with good candidates and then say, well, you know, that was less than I was making in my first academic position in 2009. That was probably the hardest part, um, from me, just kind of being down in the dumps, the, I think the most difficult decision that I made was to leave academia, Um, even though it wasn't a man, this sucks, but just kind of grappling with accepting something totally different than I had envisioned for myself as a graduate student and as someone working in academia for 10 years, kind of coming to that decision of I'm going to abandon everything I know even though what I know has let me down, and move into something that is totally new, um, scary, right? Like the world uh, outside academia, while you don't have tenure track, you also don't have as much job security, right? Like you can be let go anytime. Um, So I think that walking away and taking the plunge was the hardest part from a different perspective.
0: Okay. So I guess what I want to know is that interview you had just two days after your dad passed, that was an academic?
1: It was an academic interview. interview. Yeah. Yeah. That was, um, that was in the spring when I was still, you know, I'm, I'm going to jump right back into applying to jobs and I'm going to find something in the summer. And I was pretty successful. I actually had one the day he passed away. Um, Mm -hmm. so I didn't know. But I was going to call him that weekend and tell him about the interview. And um, then I had one that Monday. And actually, you know, it was another thing that kind of left a sour taste in my mouth about academia, because the one I had on Friday, which was a local college to me, um, with people that I was kind of professionally connected to, they ghosted me, I never heard back from them. I never got anything, not even a like, thanks for interviewing, the position closed, or we decided to hire someone else. I just heard nothing from them. Um, And then the other one, something happened after I left. I think some people um, left unexpectedly and kind of threw them for a loop and they had to close that interview. So I kind of afterwards was like, man, well, I wish I hadn't even spent my time kind of focusing on those interviews when I had more important things going on. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was it was tough, but, um, you know, I got through it and it wound up getting me where I needed to go, I guess.
0: So when did you say to yourself, okay, that's it, I I have to leave academia? Um, at when did you admit it to yourself? What was going on when you finally admitted it?
1: Yeah, I think it was something I was grappling with right away. Um, I had conversations with a friend of mine whose dad had also kind of gone through a very similar experience and had um, moved into kind of... Uh, a, uh, I'm forgetting kind of the role, but a kind of alt-academic role in administration. Um, And he kind of gave me some advice. So I was kind of taking a look at those um, positions. And really, ultimately, I think what helped me was I'm part of uh, a couple of Facebook groups, actually, that are focused on academics looking to leave academia. Um, So one in particular called Academics Say Goodbye. Uh, There was someone in that group, who actually happens to live in the same state as me, who became a really great mentor, and I've seen him do it for a, a few other people. So, um, a big out, a big shout out to Ronald Shapiro. If he hears this, he's on LinkedIn too. Um, yeah, and, he's
0: been on the podcast. Oh, too. has he? That's great. That.
1: Nope. Yeah. So he was actually um, a sounding board for me, and I talked to him a lot about, you know, my plan was well, in the fall, I'll go through the academic job market. And if nothing works out, um, I'll I'll apply for non-academic jobs because I kind of have to finish out the year anyways. And he said, don't wait, start applying to jobs now and, you know, see what happens. And you can always leave at the end of the semester or you can negotiate with them. And so he kind of opened my eyes to start the search earlier, but I still wasn't committed. So I think for me, the decision was made by finding the right job. Um, so I was on a the website for uh, my main academic society, SPSP, and their job listings. And there was this remote position for Happify Health. I was like, what is this Happify? Um, and kind of started researching and reading their description. I was like, this sounds really cool. And so I threw in my application and then heard back from them to kind of fill out some um, extra questions. And then it really hit me when I was interviewing with um, the chief science officer, Acacia Parks. And she asked me, like, why Why are you looking to move out of academia and industry? And I did this thing that, you know, when you're in an interview, you don't want to lie, but you, you tell people what they want to hear in a way that's true. Um, so I started doing that, you know, like, Well, you know, I'm kind of bored. It's, you know, it's been 10 years and I teach the same classes and the students change, but they largely stay the same. And as I was answering, I had this like epiphany of, whoa, this isn't just about being, you know, upset about my tenure denial. I really am bored. I'm bored. It's not it's not scratching the itch for me anymore. It's really teaching the same classes and I'm, I'm phoning it in because it's not enjoyable to me in the same way anymore. And I think that's when my decision was made that kind of hearing myself. And I remember going back and talking to colleagues in my academic department and telling them this, and even some of them voice like, yeah, we feel the same way, but you know, we've been at this too long. Um, So it was kind of this whoa moment of, oh, this isn't all just being dissatisfied about tenure and wanting to move out to something else. You know, this is really about moving on for a different reason that academia had served its purpose for me. And now I was bored and I needed something else.
0: Okay. So are you um, getting the something else you needed back then? Are you getting it now in in the position you're in?
1: A hundred percent. And it's really cool to say that, especially two years in. Um, but I think for me, I mean, part of it is sometimes I have these moments. I'm like, man, this was where I was always supposed to be. But like these jobs didn't exist when I was graduating from my PhD. Like they just wasn't really there, or we didn't talk about them. Um, But I think what I love about it is, whereas academia got really predictable and monotonous, my days are always different. Whether it's I'm jumping into some new literature, I need to learn about the role of mental health in diabetes or migraines or psoriasis, or I need to learn about digital therapeutic products, or I need to learn about the FDA and regulatory requirements, or I'm doing webinars for clients and talking to cool people like you, or, you know, like all kinds of things. It's my days are always so different. And I think for me, that was the big thing. I don't get bored and I'm constantly learning, whether it's academic learning or business industry learning. And that's keeping me excited to come to work every day.
0: Okay, and I want to ask, have you had some sort of insights about mental health in academia since you've been doing this work or or was that what your work was about in academia?' I've, I'm just curious about the mental health academia piece.
1: Yeah, I mean, so the interesting thing is I come from social psychology, but a lot of my work had always been focused on aspects of mental health as they related to, close relationships and social interactions. So I'd done research with depressive symptoms and social anxiety and uncertainty, but never kind of in a clinical realm about treating or managing depression. Um, And that was actually something I thought was really cool about this job that I was applying to, which, you know, the the funny thing I joke about now is the job I actually applied to was to be a writer. Um, So I applied to basically write papers for Happify, and then because they were a small startup, I quickly started designing studies and running studies and um, starting to participate in client meetings and um, other kinds of internal meetings. But the idea that I could work on research that helped us learn how we can address mental health, particularly in an accessible and scalable way was really interesting to me because it felt so impactful. It felt like such a great way of having a positive impact on the community in a way that my academic research could never do. So I think that was kind of the piece of like, it it skirted the lines of things I had always kind of studied and was interested in, but allowed me to do it in a way where I can say, and now this is how my research is actually helping to improve mental health in the real world,
0: and I guess the question I'm I'm wondering about is, um, do you have some ideas that maybe you didn't have before after having done your work after having doing done this work at Happify about like things that could actually be really useful in academia to improve overall mental health because it's a big problem in yeah. academia, and I'm wondering if you've thought about that at all.
1: I think and it's not so much like the actual work I'm doing at Happify Health, but more so being in a very different work culture and seeing how in industry in particular, like I don't know if in government jobs and you know hospitals if they care as much, but in companies like mine, there is a big Push to have positive company culture. Um, A lot of companies like ours are implementing wellness initiatives. I actually helped spearhead um, our wellness initiative. Um, So I've just witnessed kind of people whose entire job it is to think about how to promote well-being among your employees. And then part of what Happify does, like one of our markets is actually to be a product that people offer to their employees to to help promote wellness. And it, when I look at academia, it's one of these interesting environments where I don't think anyone is really paying attention to how professors are doing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, like, I don't think there are those those questions being asked about, appropriate work-life boundaries, and burnout, and psychological well-being, and offering people mental health services. And it I think, too, in a lot of ways, we promote pretty toxic work culture in academia, where it's about how much you can work. And, you know, having appropriate work-life boundaries is not a good thing when you're in academia, right? I know I know some professors who hold them, but it's really a bizarre thing when you tell your students, well, I don't check email on weekends. I have a friend who takes the whole month of August off, which is great for her, but I don't know many people who do that in academia. Um so I would say that that to me is like the biggest thing that academia and the administrators in academia in particular really need to start taking a look at is there is I think a growing discontent among academics that they are not paid adequately, particularly when you compare it to other kind of areas um, like industry or hospitals. Um, And that also they're just being asked to do so much that does not support their mental well-being. And COVID really, um, I think, exaggerated that. I think it, it put a microscope on the fact that um, professors were being asked to do things that really put their mental health at risk without any acknowledgement. And I think that's the biggest place that if academia really wants to improve things, kind of addressing the work culture, I think is the number one priority.
0: Okay, so I have somebody I talked to um, a few weeks back who said she feels bad leaving academia, Um, specifically her academic department because she feels like she's like jumping ship and leaving people who she loves and cares about to just sort of flail and Mm. she can't be there to support them anymore and she can't be there to anchor them anymore and it feels really irresponsible and hard. And I'm wondering, did you have any of those feelings? Um, I mean, I, I guess the circumstances weren't
1: right. You know? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> my hand was time. forced a little bit, but I guess what I would say to that person that you talked to is the same kind of thing that we tell parents, right? Like it's the, the same kind of advice of you can't pour from an empty cup. And I I actually think that the best thing we can do to help existing academics is to leave. And for a couple of reasons, one, um, the more we show that it can be done, you can be successful, you can be happy, it means that the ones who really are Academia is no longer where they should be. They see an out. And I don't think that was true five or six years ago. Um, I think it's been really important to see groups like Academics Say Goodbye come up or presence on LinkedIn. And I, I follow a couple of people who are really vocal about it, too to talk about the process and how much they like what they're doing now and how fulfilled they feel. But then the other part of it is even for the people, because I think there are some people where academia is their passion and it's not something that they've just grown bored with, but that they're just unhappy with how they're being treated and how academia is not necessarily um, a great work culture. And, By staying and kind of accepting the position that we're put in, I think, doesn't make universities start to realize that there's a problem. Mm -hmm. Um, They've always had a glut of applicants and been able to choose people, even with poor salaries and poor conditions. And it's about time that changes because, you know, again, like in industry right now, it's hard to find people. And so what are people doing? They're sweetening the pot. They're making benefits better. They're increasing pay They're, you know, really kind of trying to work with people, they're courting people. And I think academia has never been in that position. They've never had to think, oh crap, what if I can't find the next professor? Or they hire a bunch of adjuncts at, you know, really shameful pay. Most of the time Mm -hmm. they get people to teach five courses on contracts. Um, Those people are still living below the poverty line a lot of the time. And they just know that there are people who need this. So I think until we show people there's a different way and we we start to turn the tables where the universities start to feel like they need to sweeten the deal to get people to come, it's going to be a problem. Because the reason why they pay business people as well as they do is they know they have a better deal by going into industry, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of us in other academic professions, we don't have that that luxury of saying, well, I could go over here and make this much and have these conditions, But if so, you have to make it really enticing for me to come and work for you. And I think it's about time we get universities to start seeing other professors that way, too. Oh,
0: my gosh, 100 percent. And one of the things I'm thinking about is um, the parenthood piece. Right. um, Where you're like, I was doing my best to, you know, take care of my kids. And I had basically full responsibility of childcare, even though I was married. And it was really, really, really hard. And I wonder how much support you got, like even just emotional support from colleagues. And like, did you have any support systems within the institution?
1: I think on the surface, people were really supportive, particularly when I got divorced. Um, But in practice, people were not really supportive. Um, So Mm. a really good example of this was I was leading a committee that um, helped organize events for students And we had kind of a monthly event. I can't even remember what it was called. We had some snappy title for it, where basically we brought in speakers. I got former students to come and talk. um, And we held this kind of in our our school, you know, pub of sorts. And um, it was always in the evening. And I was a member of four on that committee, the only single parent um, two of the other committee members were also junior faculty members um, who with kids, um, but partnered, and another one was, was not attached, um, either married or with kids. And other than when I was on pre-tenure sabbatical, where the other female um, committee member took over hosting all of these events... I hosted every single one and I asked for other people to step up, but I would have other people tell me that childcare was a concern. So, uh, uh, you know, which like on that one hand, you're like, yeah, I get it. But then, you know, you're also like, but you know, I have to bring my kids, which is what I did. I I often Uh, brought my kids to those events and my students loved it because my students kind of knew my kids and um, they had a great time with them. But professionally speaking, it's not a great idea. Um, There was also a time where um, we hosted every semester a undergraduate student conference for our department and um it was after school so i brought my kids and my students were so excited one of them a group actually asked my oldest son to introduce them um you Mm -hmm. know so the students expressed no problems but my kids are not you know i know my kids my kids are not the kinds of kids that should probably go to these things but um whereas other faculty members were allowed to bring their kids no problem i was actually pulled in later and told that um it couldn't happen again. Um, so, you know, and, and truth be told our university actually had a policy that they didn't really enforce, but was there in writing that children were not allowed on on campus, which I don't think is unique. Um, I think actually, Mm. if you look at a lot of institutions at the the kind of fine print in faculty handbooks, a lot of them say that kids are not allowed on campus. So, Mm. um, I think there was a lot of kind of talk about being supportive, but when the, the rubber hit the road, there was no support. Um, and then you add on to it that I was displaced from family. I moved for a job and had no one in the area. So, you know, it, it was, it was really, really tough to kind of balance the two things. And I don't regret my decision to prioritize my family because that's a moment in time that I never get back. But I do think that it was part of the reason that if I had had a partner at home that stayed with my kids all the time, and I missed out on a lot of their things, I probably it may have been different what turned out in terms of tenure.
0: Okay, and I'm guess now I'm wondering about what the support is like now in the work you're doing now. And are you back home where you are near family? Do you have that kind of support too?
1: No. So I actually, one of the things I loved about my, my job is it's remote. So I got to stay. I'm in Rhode Island. I got to stay in Rhode Island in our house, um, which was important because my ex-husband lives in, in Connecticut about an hour away. Um, and if I had moved, I really would have threatened my um, custody with my children because he rightfully would have gone like, hey, I don't want you to move away with our kids. Um, so, you know, so I've stayed here, but, you know, we we've built a pretty good community here. Um, the, I would say, and I'm pretty lucky. So my job is remote. I work from home. Um, it means every morning I walk my kids to school every day. I block off from three o'clock to four o'clock off on my work calendar. Um, and that's something I can do. I can just block it off and I go pick up my kids from school. We hang out at the playground for a little bit after, Um, And it's still really, really tough. I'm not going to lie. I think it's always tough as a working parent, and it's extra tough as a working single parent. But one of the things I was really surprised by was I had always assumed academia gave me more flexibility. And what I'm actually finding is that I have more control over my flexibility in the work that I'm doing now, particularly working from home. So a really great example is before COVID, even before the whole COVID mess and kids at home and all that kind of stuff, my youngest son went through like a month where he was just had these symptoms that kept him home so much. And I thought about it because it was my first semester not teaching. And I thought, man, if he had been sick, he was at home one whole week and in the past, when I was teaching, I would allow myself to cancel one class per course that I taught, um, whether I was sick or my kids were sick. And I thought, what would I have done? I wouldn't have been able to go in for a whole week because I couldn't have brought him in with me. Whereas now, he, you know, like he got to lay down and watch TV and kind of relax. And I got to keep working so I could do full work days and go and check on him in between meetings um, but also I can block off time to go take my kids to the doctor, or, um, I'm three blocks away from our school. So if I get a call from the school nurse, I can run over and go <laughs> pick them up. So it's really been interesting that while I think I don't have as much flexibility in setting my schedule and I don't have the summers where I'm not teaching, the flexibility that I've gotten in terms of the control I have to to take specific times, off, um, to take vacation when I need it, and to be able to work from home has really been helpful. And the other thing I'll say, too, um, I mentioned kind of the wellness initiative that I helped spearhead with some other folks at my company. It was one place where because again, there was, I think, more of an emphasis on making good company culture, I could voice my opinion as a single mother and say, here are some things that make my job really challenging. And these are the ways that things can help. Um, Things like helping to cover child care for work related travel. That's a massive expense for a single parent without any support nearby, because you have to arrange for overnight childcare and extra childcare, and that stuff's really expensive. Um, And in academia, unless you have grants, you really don't have a lot of funding to help you with conference travel and everything. So um, I think there's been really surprising and creative ways that I found my job makes it a little bit easier. even though it's still I'm not going to lie it's still it's still tough my kids watch a lot of tv while i'm in meetings you know
0: <laughs> mhm 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 i hear you um and, and and i know you said that this whole like single parent thing um is something that that you know is stigmatized and people kind of try to hide how challenging it is and i wonder if you could um I don't know, speak to that a little bit so that we can, like you said, normalize single parenthood a bit. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think, you know, it's, it's one thing I'm, I'm one of these people who just kind of lives out loud and lives my truth. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not the person who necessarily hides it, but I have noticed that, you know, professionally you, you worry about people thinking about being, a single parent as a negative, particularly because I think oftentimes um, compared to some other things that we deal with, people see single parenthood as a choice. Um, So they almost kind of see it as, you know, we've we've created this situation for ourselves. And then I think we we feel this need not just professionally, but I think especially professionally because the risks are so much higher. Um, to look like we've got our shit together, you know. Like we, I, I, I have this wonderful virtual community of single academic moms, and we often talk about this fact that we seem we balance these plates and spin these plates so well for the outside world that that people don't really see how difficult it can be. And I think we partly do that because we feel like the expectations are so high for us. So. You never want to be the person who looks like your single parenthood is making it so you can't travel to a conference or you can't teach that class Uh. or you can't make it to that meeting. And, um, I think it means that oftentimes we wind up kind of getting doubly punished because we're trying to do it all and we just can't. And so it winds up coming out in other ways and then people, don't really understand. And it looks like we've failed or we haven't tried hard enough. Um, So I think it's been really important for me to even at my current company to just make it really obvious to people I'm divorced. I'm a single parent of two. These are the ways that it's challenging for me. There's, you know, I, I visibly block off in my calendar that I'm leaving to go pick up my kids. Um, And I think the more we do that, the more I'm also allowing for other people who might have lower status roles, uh, more Mm -hmm. junior folks who might not feel as free to be able to express themselves so that we start to just get people thinking about it. Because I think people forget, they forget that it's hard or they just don't know because they've never, uh, they've never experienced it. And it, it's I'm telling you, we single moms, this group that I'm part of, we're all so tired. You know, I think Mm -hmm. all parents are tired, especially after the past two years. But um, we are all so tired and we often feel invisible. And I think it's really important for people to be vocal and visible so that we make this whole community less invisible and get people Mm -hmm. to start to think about how to help us in ways um, that they might not necessarily realize.
0: I mean, I was raised by a single mom and I don't think I knew everything that I, of course I didn't, you know, I was right. a kid and this is just how life is, you know, and My she mom protected you like she
1: from shit. it, right? <laughs> right? She spun all those plates really, really well for you. So you would never know how tough yeah. it was for her, right? Like, we don't want our kids to to feel guilty about it or to feel yeah, yeah. bad for us. And I think we do that for the outside world. And that's true of parents in general, right? Like, it's just, I think it's extra when you're the only parent in the household.
0: Totally. I can, yeah, yeah. I cannot even imagine trying to do everything she did as I think about it now. Right. Uh, <laughs> as somebody who's partnered, right? Like, <laughs> and I'm tired a lot. Right, as you're tired. <laughs> So what kind of advice do you have for, um, I don't know, single parents for maybe people who could support single parents? I know you already offered quite a bit already, but is there anything that you would, I don't know, I just want to give you space to say whatever else you need to say about this. Um, Yeah. Do you have anything more?
1: I mean, I guess my message to single parents, and I think especially, single parents who might be in academia and are still kind of struggling with what can feel like an impossible expectation set out for anyone, even childless um, academics or academic parents who are partnered or those with family, right? Like it's hard for everyone. But um, as a single parent, I think if you have power... If you're tenured or you ha- you're have, you on committees that help make decisions, um, it's really important to step out of our comfort zone and ask for help and talk about the struggles mm-hmm. because it's the only way that we're going to be able to help the people who don't have the voice or the power to do it. Um, and if you're not the single parent that Institutions and other academics really need to start looking at the work culture because I think, you know, it, it, it's like the, you know, thinking about the curb and how if you make it where at the curb for the corner, if there's the ramp, it helps people in wheelchairs, but it helps everyone. It helps moms with strollers. It's the same kind of principle that whatever helps single parents really helps everyone else too. Um so you know support think about meetings that happen after 5 mm-hmm. think about classes some places classes start at 7:30 in the morning or 8:30 in the morning you know if if you have those classes don't assign them to parents and especially not single parents because schools don't start that early um have plans for when it's you know kids are home and don't have meetings late at night or, you know, all these kinds of things. And that applies to non-academic worlds too. But I I think we're so used to in academia of just being like, okay, yeah, there's this meeting, faculty meeting at 6 p.m. Great. I have no choice but to go, right? And I think really pushing back on something that I think Brown actually did of having family-friendly policies, like those are good for everyone even if you don't have kids, it means you can go to the gym, you can go home and actually have a home cooked meal, right? Like, these are good things for everyone. But I think thinking about the people who may need that, it's not just a nice to have, but it's really going to be the difference between them succeeding professionally, losing their minds, or feeling like they're failing as a parent. Um, Those are the folks that we need to start thinking about more.
0: One hundred percent. I am so glad you're talking about this. Um, thank you. Thank you for that.
1: Thanks for letting me talk about it.
0: It's it's so my pleasure. Um, like I was telling you before the recording, you know, there's really only one episode I have of you know almost a hundred, of um us talking very, uh very pointedly about parenting. Like yeah. we, just, we haven't done it much on the podcast, and it and it's probably for reasons you're describing. Right. right? Like, <laughs> We it, it it's not, it's not a normalized sort of topic. Um, and so it's like, it, 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 we can't even like let it out publicly, even if it's on our minds, like right. we don't think that it's okay to communicate about it. Even if
1: you're a partnered parent, right? Like that's the thing is it's just, it's an environment where it's like, it's supposed to be separate and it's never supposed to interfere with your work life. And we all know it interferes with our work life in so mm-hmm. many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, But we're worried we're going to get penalized for it. So, yeah.
0: Okay. So this is what I want to ask about, because you had said early in the interview about Being at sort of a nice resting point, the false, it's not the false summit, um, but you're in this place where you got your snack, you got your water, you feel pretty good. You're looking at the climb that you just made and you're like, damn, I'm glad that's over. (laughs) And so now I want to know in this spot that you're in, where you're still going to be making the climb a bit, what do you want to see? happen now? Like, where are you going? What, what is the sort of next step in your mind?
1: I think the cool thing is I don't really know where I'm going. It's almost like there's like a mm. few different trails I could take and I'm in a position to like sit and ponder, like, what view do I want to see next? Um, And I think the really fun thing about where I'm at now is whereas in academia, it felt like there was this predictable path and people don't often, move on, you know, they stay at their institutions and they build a home there and they get tenure and then it's professor, um, you know, I, I think I could, I could be happy continuing what I'm doing now for a long time, but I could also move up in my own company, in my existing company, taking on more responsibilities from a business perspective or, um, a public persona perspective. Um, I could learn more about, um, FDA and regulatory and get even more clinical. Or if, you know, I start to get bored at some point, there's opportunities to think about like, what, what do I want to do next? Do I want to move to a different kind of role to a different kind of company? And I'm not there yet. I love what I do and I love where I'm at, but that's, that's, a path that is open to me that I don't think I would have been open to two years ago when I was still firmly placed in its, its academia or bust. And now it's like, well, there's a whole lot of things. I made this move. I could make other moves, you know, at some point. Um, that's so I think awesome. I'm just enjoying the view and kind of thinking about like learning about, you know, it's like I'm looking at the guidebook and being like, what, where does this path take me? How hard is it yeah. going to be? Um, and, you know, maybe in the next year or so, I'll I'll have some idea of which one I'm going to take and maybe I'll double back. Who knows? But um, it's kind of this like whole new world of being able to see that there are lots of different
0: paths I could take. Wow. That's such a good place to be in. Options are a wonderful thing. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Okay. So in sort of closing, what is the one thing you would like to say just to sort of bring closure to our conversation to make it feel complete?
1: I guess I would say um, to anyone listening who may have been interested in this podcast because of kind of the the lived experience that I've had, and it's something that I said um, on LinkedIn when I celebrated kind of getting my director role, is um, that if people are kind of not happy with where they are and fear of the unknown or the different is keeping them where they're stuck... Um, to not be afraid to jump off the hamster wheel that. I think when I look professionally, but also personally, part of the reason it took me so long to get divorced was the same kind of principle, this like fear of what the, the different would look like. What would my life look like once I was divorced? What would my life look like if I left academia? All these things, fear is such an important thing and uncertainty is can be just as debilitating as fear, but we can redefine ourselves whenever we want we're capable of it and we can do amazing things and sometimes being willing to take that step off the hamster wheel and have the courage to redefine yourself lands you in a place that you never dreamt you could be, but you realize was where you were always supposed to be.
0: That is such a great note to end on. If people are interested in connecting to you, how can we do that?
1: So uh, people can definitely find me on LinkedIn. Um, so I'm on LinkedIn under my name, um, Eliane Boucher. And I'm pe- I'm happy for people to reach out to me by email too. So um, people can email me at my work email, which is Eliane at Happify.com. I'm happy to talk to people. And as time permits, I'm always happy to Connect with people offline, whether it's messages or Zoom chats. Um, my time doesn't always allow for it, but I'm always game to kind of talk to people who are thinking about an alternative path. Um, I'm happy to talk about my story and my experiences.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Danielle. Thanks for listening to Self Compassionate Professor. Find me on LinkedIn at Danielle Delamar on Twitter and Instagram at Danielle S.C. Prof or schedule a free coaching consult at selfcompassionateprofessor.com. Be well.